Wizards of the Coast announces one D&D, the new iteration of Dungeons and Dragons, and we're going to talk all about it on today's Lazy D&D talk show. We're going to talk about the first playtest packet that they have released that talk about character backgrounds and things like that and some interesting new rules changes. We're going to talk about their announcements of a 3D virtual tabletop, which they just showed off, showed off little screenshots here and there. We're going to talk about Dragonlance coming out at the end of the year. We're going to talk about the five other products that Wizards of the Coast announced for year 2023. All today on the Lazy D&D Talk Show, I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things D&D. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material, exclusive products, access to a dedicated Discord channel, access to the monthly Sly Flourish Q&A and all kinds of other things, but most of all, they help me put on shows like this. If you would like to become a patron of Sly Flourish, you can do so in the link in the show notes below, and to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for helping me put on this show. Boy, was Thursday a big day. They had said that they were going to do a lot of announcements on Thursday, and boy, did they. They gave us Good, firm details about the next iteration of D&D, some things we can really sink our teeth into. They gave us a quick snapshot of the 3D virtual tabletop that we might see someday. They talked about Dragonlance and gave firm and official dates, including the first time that you can now buy a bundle. But we're going to talk about some of the problems with that. And they, they announced in like five seconds, they announced five new books or five new products that they're putting out in 2023, five books. It was so, the announcement, so I don't know that this matters too much, but I'm gonna talk about it. The announcement, the, the things that they announced were incredibly interesting. The format of the announcement was terrible. I don't know why they decided that it was a good thing to mix all of the Magic the Gathering and all of the D&D stuff together, but I don't imagine either group was particularly happy because we all come there because we're fans of usually one of the other. I know that there are people who like both, but I guarantee you Wizards of the Coast likes both more than most of us like both. I'm interested when Magic does stuff with D&D, and I imagine the Magic people are interested when there's an overlap with D&D stuff, but generally speaking, we're not that interested. So there was one point where they were talking about Magic stuff for a long time, and then all of a sudden, like, oh yeah, and by the way, here's five new D&D books and it was literally like 30 seconds long the announcement was like 30 seconds long announcing five books it was crazy I was talking to somebody on discord and completely missed it I had to rewind it and go look I'm like what did they just what what planescape what right it was crazy so I don't know why they did that and I hope they don't do it that way again but it really doesn't matter like and they generally they're announced and we're going to see all kinds of articles and all kinds of stuff so it really it really doesn't matter how the format of the event was but boy that I thought that was really 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 weird the first thing is of course the announcement that they are doing a new iterate we already knew they were doing a new iteration of D&D we knew that it was going to be in 2024 we weren't, it was real hedgy on details. Well, they were much more specific on details. And one of the things that they said is it is definitely going to be fully backward compatible, which is great. That's something I asked for. I wrote an article. The article got a lot of attention until they did the announcements. And the article was what I would like to see from the next iteration of D&D. And two of the six things were both about backward compatibility. I wanted to make sure that all the books that we have and all the stuff that we've been doing and all the learning that we've had and all the experiences we had that we can capitalize on. It's been eight years and I still love it. I don't really need much to change. Lots of people are saying, I really don't need a new version. I'm kind of in that camp. I don't mind them refreshing and doing new stuff. And that's great. And there've been enough changes with 5e 
that I think it, it's probably worth kind of refreshing the core books. I'm not against it. I think it's going to be fine, but I really want to make sure that like, I mean, I don't get a choice, but I would really hope that it's as backward compatible. But I saw a really funny comment on Reddit that got my attention where they said like the new core books that are coming out are going to be fully backward 5e compatible. And the first comment was 5e isn't even 5e backward compatible. And that cracked me up because I was like, yeah, that's kind of true. Like when you include Tasha's and you include Xanathar's and you see all the changes and you look at like the things that they did in Strixhaven and all these different sort of changes that they've made, Monsters of the Multiverse, there is this like, is 5e even 5e compatible? If you look at just the core books compared to the books that have been coming out today, the vocabulary has changed. A lot of things have changed. So does it, is it really truly backward compatible is a, is a good question. And I think when we dig into the, the first playtest doc, we can start to see some things. When I, when I think about what value I can provide in this, I think something that I can talk about is how we give our feedback. The majority of people playing D&D today were not involved in the D&D Next playtest. I was involved in the D&D Next playtest. I was actually involved in some of its earliest days. I don't think I saw, there were some private playtests that went out that I was not part of, but I was at the Winter Fantasy where they first showed the first iteration of D&D Next. And so I can share some of those experiences because I think it may help get an understanding of what this playtest might be like, although there'll definitely be differences. One thing that's worth considering is I expect lots of things to change. I believe them when they say we put out this playtest and we're going to get feedback on it and things are going to change. Boy, did D&D Next change significantly from what came out in 5e in many ways, most of them in very positive ways. But if you looked at the initial playtest and you can go Google it and read what some of them were like, D&D Next playtest was radically different from what came out with 5th edition. So I would not hang on too tightly that the things you're seeing in these playtests are how 5th edition or how the next iteration is going to be. That said, there already is a, if this is really just compounding off of the existing fifth edition, it's not as likely to change as it was going from fourth edition to DD next, which was huge. It was a completely different game. In this case, I don't think we're going to see that. So that's worth considering is that when we look at it, it's likely that we're going to see changes. That said, we can provide feedback. One of the things that people said, like the, the a piece of value that I could provide is how to provide feedback. The reality is I'm not sure of the best way to provide feedback. Certainly reading and trying out the rules is an effective thing to do. Certainly filling out their surveys is an effective thing to do. But I'm not so sure that being loud and angry on Twitter is also not an effective way to provide feedback. We live in an algorithmically generated world these days. And everything that we kind of post on the internet is sort of served up based on algorithms. And boy, those algorithms love angry people. If you go and you look at YouTube and you look at Twitter and you see the top stuff, a lot of it is like negative things or seven things I hate about sorcerers or whatever. And the reality is that stuff gets bubbled up. And I don't know that the designers of D&D don't see that sort of stuff. I know I have seen angry, emotional tweet threads that got the attention of Wizards of the Coast. And I bet you that got a higher degree of attention than somebody who filled out a survey. I'm not saying everybody should go with their pitchforks and their torches and go to Twitter and be loud. I'm saying I'm not sure that that's not effective. <laughs> I, don't, I know that's not how I plan to do it. But of course, what did I do? I wrote up a blog post and a newsletter and I... I tweeted it to Ray Weninger, the head of the design team, and said, I humbly submit this for your for your look. I didn't expect that they'd do everything that's in there. I don't expect they'll do everything in there. All I wanted was for Ray Weninger to maybe read it. And I think he did. I, it's pretty clear he did because he replied back or he actually quote tweeted saying, I'm going to like what, what I see. 
Great. I'm very happy about that. I wasn't mean. I, I, I tried to start with my love of D&D because I love D&D. I also don't give the perspective that because I'm angry about one thing that that means it's important to everybody. I don't think that's necessarily true. I'm sure there are things I'm very passionate about that really don't matter to most people. That doesn't mean I don't have an opinion. And it doesn't mean that I'm not going to submit that opinion forward and we see where it goes. When offering feedback, I think you should use all the channels available to you. If you have a thing that you're angry about and you go to Twitter and you try to start a big tweet thread, a hot tweet thread about it, you know, I might frown, especially if I disagree with it, but I, you know, I think it's your right. And I'm not going to say that I think that that's not an effective way to provide feedback. I'm not sure putting up YouTube videos, angry YouTube videos might be an effective way to provide feedback. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. It's going to be interesting how feedback, but I would suggest doing feedback. I, I would not suggest sitting on your hands and saying, oh, what was me? I don't like what I see, but I'm not going to say anything about it. I would certainly provide feedback. If you have feelings about this, if you look at it and you have things you like and things you don't, I would certainly, I would certainly offer some stuff. We're going to take a look at the actual play test that came out. But I would also very much recommend watching Jeremy Crawford's one hour video where he talks a lot about the things in here. It's in the, there's a link to it in the show notes below. It's an hour long. You can watch it on double speed and get a lot out of it. And it not only talks about the things that are in there and why, which is really important. Why did they do some of these things? You can also tell like which things they feel pretty good about and which things they don't. So now let's actually take a look at the playtest itself. You can sign up for the playtest. It's on Dignity Beyond. I will put a link in the show notes about how to join the playtest so you can get access to it. It is PDF. It's like a 24 page, 21 page PDF. Let's talk about the character origins. So this is the first playtest document they put out and it is about race and backgrounds. It has stuff about languages. It talks about feats and it has a rules glossary. The rules glossary has some rules changes that they're trying out, which I kind of like. I imagine they're going to drop some rule changes in throughout the playtest and we can see. Overall, I'm very happy with what I'm seeing. I like, I like what I'm seeing. There's definitely things where I question it and I like, I wonder how that's going to work, but Overall, I, I like it. And one of the things that's really interesting about this playtest being different than all of the D&D Next playtests is they can put out pieces and we can try it out with our existing fifth edition game. Because all of this stuff is mostly compatible, we can just drop stuff in and try it. And I'm going to. I'm going to be starting up a new D&D game, an every other week Saturday D&D game using my own campaign world, The City of Arches, which is available to patrons. You can go to patreon.com. Flair, she can pick up the City of Arches and I'm running a campaign there. And I'm going to use this stuff. I'm going to try it out. That's going to be a way to, for me to try it out. And I think I think that will work. So I really like what they're doing. One of the things that they wanted to do with races is really kind of get into the idea of what we've seen with ancestries and cultures. The idea that the race you select does not define everything about who you are and where you came from and your view of the world, which is a big change from the 2014 version. If you look, and again, like I've often used the orc and goblin monster descriptions in the monster manual as a examples of how they've said like all orcs are cave dwelling savages that hit people with axes and all goblins are black hearted little thieves that kind of language needs to go away and i am perfectly happy with it going away goblins can be there's no reason goblins can't be a bunch of farmers there's no reasons why orcs can't be paladins of tear and in fact in many adventures they have been these things if you read eberron eberron has totally different takes on those things do you want them to be a bunch of you know a bunch of black-hearted thieves you can do that if you want to you could also say these goblins of meglubiet are a bunch of black-hearted little thieves but these other goblins are cool farmers expand you can do it it'll be okay they're doing that definitely at the character race standpoint of kind of breaking race away and saying who you are is defined not just by race but also by the background you pick and these other sort of options it's a little bit like the answer season cultures supplement very popular supplement that's on the drive through rpg you can see a link to it in the show notes below and they essentially you can sort of combine things together so instead of having half elves and half orcs now you can actually take parts of elves parts of orcs parts of humans parts of other groups and build your own 
pieced together race, which I think is really cool. I think it's a really great way to give people a lot of flexibility in their creation. And your culture can be defined a lot by the background you choose combined with that race, which I think I think it's a good approach. I am no expert in how this sort of thing plays out in, in kind of our current social times. So I'm going to leave it to other people to decide, like, did they go far enough in their descriptions? Because there's little things like if you read the orc one, it still says like they owe their creation to Grumsh and they still have this connection to Grumsh as, you know, evil God, unstoppable, one eyed God, unstoppable warrior. Are they trying to make Grumsh good or are they still saying, well, as orcs, you're still tied to this kind of evil God thing? Again, not it's not really my area to say. I'm I'm not an expert in it. I think they're making a, a good progress there. I wouldn't be surprised if they're going to, and I think they have gotten some pushback that says there's still a fair bit of bioessentialism going on in the descriptions of races. But the idea that you can mix races together to create any kind of half race that you want, I think that's really good. I think tying to different cultures through backgrounds, I think that that can really work well too. It gives a lot of flexibilities. There is one new race that's in here, the Ardling. The Ardling is is a celestial race that has sort of animal features, suggested connection to animals. What I love about this is they basically said, here is your anthropomorphic animal race, and it can be any of them. So there's one race that's going to exist that can let you be a cat person or a dog person or a donkey person or a goat person. Whatever you want to be, you can use that anthropomorphic view and connect it to a single race that exists inside this version of Dini. I think that's a really cool idea. I think it's a smart move to create a single race that can look like any of the different kind of animal races that you want to that you want to that you want to be and still have access to other animal races like tabaxi or turtles or Kenku, you can still have all of those other races, but you can now have one race where in the core book, if you want to be a cat person, you just be a cat person, just pick this race. I think that I think that that's a very smart move. There is one paragraph I want to I want to point out early on where it talks about power level. And it says like the character options you read in here might be more or less powerful than options in the player's handbook. If the design survives playtesting, we, we adjust its power to the desirable level before official publication. This is a kind of a lawyerly way of saying we don't know if the power level is actually going to match the power level of the player's handbook. It didn't say that. It says we adjust its power to the desirable level. That desirable level might be more powerful than what's in the 2014 player's handbook, which gets into that question of backward compatibility. Are the characters that you build using these rules more powerful just with what's in here than the ones that are in the 2014 guidebook and i think the answer is yes because backgrounds include feats backgrounds did not include feats no one got the only person who got a free feat was were humans the variant human got a free feat no one else did now they have these first level feats that are tied to backgrounds if you pick the acolyte background you get a feat magic initiate which means you get to pick a divine spell that you didn't have every character can have this one divine spell Boy, you sure didn't get that in this 2014 version of the player's handbook. I think there's no way that these aren't more powerful. Now, you could do some compatibilities and backward compatibility and say, hey, if you want to pick one of the ones that's in the player's handbook, that's fine. But you're going to want to pick one of these feats that's in the player's handbook feat and limit those feats. Yeah, somebody brings up that the Spelljammer backgrounds now also includes feats. It's one thing when a supplementary book includes something like this, because you could always just say, yeah, that's fine for Spelljammer. That's fine for Strixhaven. But that's not how the core is. But now we're talking about the core. And now we mean a 2023 player's handbook character is going to be more powerful than a 2014 player's handbook character, even though they're both compatible because the 2023 one included a feat, which is a huge, big thing. Toughness. If you get toughness for free, that's a big one. Now it's very easy to take the 2014 one and just say, well, just give it toughness. You know, you get a free feat, pick a feat. 
And actually, you can make the first one more powerful by saying they could pick any of the feats in the book. I think it's going to be difficult when we talk about that 5e isn't even 5e compatible anymore. That idea that there's going to be a power jump. There's no way there could be a power jump. And they didn't say there wouldn't be. They just kind of said, like, we understand that these are more powerful than the 2014 ones. And we're going to baseline that power in the playtest process. But they didn't say that it's going to be weaker. And when you pick a background that has a free feat, that's a big you know, that's a big bonus. Now they're limited. The, the, you can only pick a first level feat. The other interesting thing is that backgrounds are actually, the default for a background is you make your own, but they have some packaged ones that you can put together. So that's kind of neat that you can sort of build your background based on who you are in the world and what you want. You get to choose your ability score bonuses. You get to pick two skills that you're proficient. You pick a tool proficiency, you pick your languages. You get one of your first level feats and you pick your equipment. That's an interesting approach. It's 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 a lot. And you might just say, it's a lot easier if I just pick the cultist feat and I get arcane magic initiate and I get plus two to intelligence and plus one to charisma. These are packages that are together more so than the default, which is which was an interesting approach. So I think it's cool. I want to try it out. We'll see. I'm not, I don't, I don't see, you know, there's no disaster. Oh my God, they've ruined D&D. I'm not worried about that. A, because it is a play test. Although I, I expect that the feat with a background is probably going to stick. I think if I had to guess, that looks like one of those things that's going to stick. And I don't know that's that, that that's not a good way for the game to go because I know lots of DMs have house ruled that characters can pick a feat at first level. I've seen it many times when I've seen threads about what kind of house rules people pick. One of the common house rules is you get a free feat. All right, so they, they kind of built that, they, they built that in. I think, I think that that can work. So they have a whole bunch of first level feats and this is pretty easy that even if you're picking everything from the player's handbook, you could say, okay, that's fine, but here are a bunch of feats that you can pick. There are some changes to the feats. The lucky feat, for example, is advantage and disadvantage. So there are some changes to the feats that are in here that are probably worth noting and trying out and, and, seeing, and seeing how it works. Now let's talk about some of the changes in the rules glossary. There's some, there are definitely some interesting things in here. They did break up spells by like arcane, divine, and primal. That's an interesting thing. I don't really have a lot of interesting things to say about it, but that's like, oh, that's kind of interesting. This idea that essentially all of the artisan's tools, instead of having different prices for everything, that they're all the same price, that's kind of interesting. Creature types, I don't know if they changed the creature types. Every creature in D&D, including player characters, has a special tag that identifies a creature. Here's a list of the creature types, and then certain things can affect creature types. I guess that's handy. There's some 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 sort of consolidation of the, of the nomenclature. The D20 test, the idea that they're creating a new term called D20 test, and a D20 test is an ability check, a saving throw or an attack roll. And that way they don't have to say ability check, saving throw, attack roll. They can just say, when you make a D20 test, you can get an advantage. That's great. Then we get to this idea here, which is anytime you roll a one, it is a failure. Anytime you roll a 20 it is a success on any D20 test. I think that's perfectly fine for attack rolls. I think that's perfectly fine for saving throws. For ability checks, I'm not so sure. What I worry about is this idea that like a commoner can throw an aircraft carrier to the moon 5% of the time. That, you know, you can create these situations where, and, and I think they said like the top DC is 30, that you really can't, anything higher than a 30 is, is just impossible to do. So you would say like, there is no throwing an aircraft carrier to the moon that's below a DC of 30. But you still say like, well, uh, they could have like a DC 28 check to bypass the most complicated lock on Orcus's secret vault. And a commoner with a dexterity of eight can still open Orcus's vault 5% of the time. Now, maybe you say, well, that's only for characters. Like, like we don't roll D20 tests for, for NPCs, but you might if it was like a tag along. The NPCs 
do make checks. That's why they have ability checks. So they, you could, if you had your hireling and say, oh, hey, here's Orcus's most prized vault. Hey, hireling, why don't you go do it? You got a 5% chance, right? Everybody gets a 5% chance to bait, regardless of what your ability score is. Everybody has a 5% chance of potentially succeeding in something that has a DC. Even though this is going to have to stress that some things are just plain impossible, but there are things that are possible that might have a DC of 29, that a commoner with an attribute of eight who's minus one on their roll is still going to roll and get a 20 and get the equivalent of a plus 10 bonus to that roll because they happen to roll a 20. I think it's fine for saving throws. I think it's fine for attack rolls. I don't think it should be for ability checks. That's my own. That's my own take. If you think the same thing, make sure to mention it in your feedback when you send in your survey in a couple of weeks. Yes, the DM, of course, determines if a D20 test is warranted, but there's still that idea like it may be warranted for one character. And so you say, sure, you can make a check. And they go, oh, well, now I want to make the check. And I have nothing. And as long as I roll a 20, I can succeed. I'm still not crazy about that. So I, I, would, I would not do it on ability checks. Critical hits. I am almost sure the critical hit rule that's in here is not going to make it to the final one. I would bet money that it does not make it into the final version of the playtest. My evidence for this is when Jeremy Crawford talks about it in his video, boy, does he get squirmy in his chair. Boy, is he quick to say... You know, this is all just testing things out and we have feedback and it could change. He backpedals on it before they even start talking about it. I think it's possible they put the critical hit thing in here, knowing that it's controversial, knowing that it's kind of wild as a wild ass idea with the recognition that probably people are not going to like this and probably we're going to change it. And then we can say something like, look, we changed it based on your feedback. So I think it's them putting something out there to, to draw change. They know it's going to change because they're terrible. The critical hit rules here are terrible. What problem do they think they're fixing with this? So many issues with 5e that could use some polishing that could really critical hits. The funny thing is, if you talk to people that the house rules that they use for critical hits, similar to the house rule about rolling 20s, similar to the house rule about giving a feed at first level, most people do max plus an extra die. That if you roll an attack roll and you critically hit, you get to do your max damage plus the dice that you were going to do, which makes for really powerful critical hits. Think about them. If you have a paladin who does a smite against undead and crits, they get to max all of their dice and then throw more dice on top. That's a tremendous amount of damage. But I can tell you, as a DM, I think it's really cool like that. You, you want people to do these huge hits. That one's a little extreme. No one. When you look at this, you say, why are you making crits weaker? Were strong critical hits really a problem? I don't think so. No, I don't. I didn't really hear people complaining that, oh, critical hits are ruining. They critical hits almost ruined fourth edition. That's a little dramatic. But I think the, the way that fourth edition handled critical hits, they happened all of the time. And so many things triggered off of critical hits that they just exploded and got totally out of hand. It would paralyze games. I would have people do a crit and everyone else at the table got to make another free attack. It was abysmal. I have had no problems with the critical hits in fifth edition in eight years of running it. Hundreds and hundreds of games. No problem with crits. I don't know why they're touching crits. But if you were going to, the one I would love would be just double the damage. Right? When you critical hit, double all the damage. Roll all your dice and double it. It's very straightforward. It's very easy. The math is simple. The rule is very, very tight. Double your damage. Really easy. And I don't know why you would remove monster crits. That's ridiculous. And the argument for this is also equally ridiculous. That monsters can't critically hit. Oh, why? Because there's that whole question of the, like, if you're using average damage, how do you do a crit? It's not hard. 
and they know how to do it. Roll the die that's there or double it. Do what I do. Double the damage, right? Monsters could use a boost. Their argument that, oh, monsters don't need to critically hit because monsters have rechargeable abilities. Those rechargeable abilities are not critical hits. It's not like the red dragon does 170 damage on its breath weapon. They're pretty balanced. Those, those recharge abilities are balanced into the math. They don't double. And boy, some of the monsters that I was just reading about in, in Spelljammer, I was looking at the monsters and it's like, oh, a CR-19 lunar dragon has a breath weapon that does 36 damage at CR-19. That's crazy. That's not a critical hit. A critical hit is 180 damage. I'm not worried though, because I'm almost sure this is going to change. But certainly I want monsters to have critical hits again. Let's talk about inspiration. Inspiration is really interesting. And I have another request, something that we can do that I think can make the game better. So inspiration, they've always had trouble with figuring out like when you should award inspiration. And they came up with this pretty good idea that you should get inspiration on a die roll, that if you roll a particular die roll, you should get it. The one they, they picked is a 20. If you roll a 20, you get inspiration. If you already have inspiration and you get a 20, you can give that inspiration to someone else. That's cool, except you already just rolled a 20. And as we saw, a 20 is already really good. Why are you compounding the goodness with more goodness? Instead, give it to people who roll a one. And the advantages of getting, a, of getting inspiration when you roll a one are tremendous because you're giving the player who's having a crappy time a good bonus. You're somebody who's having terrible luck. You just doubled their chances to increase their good luck. There's so many advantages. So change it. I, I like the idea of getting it on a roll, but move the roll to a low roll to a one instead of a 20. And maybe even something like if someone has failed three times, they get it. Give it to people who need it. Give it to people who are having a bad time at the game. When you roll ones, it sucks. When you roll low and miss all the time, it sucks. And if you're in a game and you don't have that many rolls to begin with because you got six other people at the table and games are going long and everything like that, and you only get like four or five rolls in a game and you roll poorly a lot, that sucks. So I think the idea of get it on a one and you're giving that bonus to somebody who really needs it. You're giving that bonus to somebody who really needs it. I think that is a much better way to go. I saw that we had somebody in the Discord chat and Sly Flourish who brought that up. Really fantastic idea. I saw it up on Reddit. Reddit had a big post and it got 300 upvotes and stuff saying it should be on a one. So I'm hoping that this campaign picks up because I think it'll be a really good change to the game. So if you agree, you might want to mention that when you're doing your playtest survey. Mention the fact that it would be better if it was on a one. I think it would even be cool if you could do it when people miss, not all the time, but like if people miss consistently. A, a good DM thing is give inspiration to somebody who's who's missed it a couple of times. I think that that would be a good way to go. They also talk about long rest. They've changed some of the, same of the, like what can interrupt a long rest. It seems like they've made it far easier to interrupt a long rest, which is a good deal for players who are like, oh, I just long rest right here in the woods. Anytime you like roll initiative, it's going to break your long rest and it, it starts over again so you it really makes it that you're going to have to find a good safe place to be able to take a long rest if you are gambling on it you're going to lose a lot of time and the rest can be easily interrupted i think i think that all works there is some question of like oh our short rest gone I, I there's been this like rumor on the internet you read it on reddit and stuff like that they'd be like oh they're getting rid of short rest they're not getting rid of short rest there's mentioned right here short rest is right here in interrupting the rest and it's in other areas i don't think they're going to get rid of short rest i think that would be a huge change to the game and it would probably break a lot of the backward compatibility 
flexibility. I fully expect we're going to continue to have short and long rests. But it looks like they're making long rests a little harder to maintain in hostile areas, which I think is good. Let's talk about some of the other things that they announced during the show. And again, they announced a ton of stuff. They showed off the first alpha bits of a 3D virtual tabletop. You can you can watch it. I'll link I'll find a video and I'll link it in the show notes where you can take a look at what it looks like. And they're clearly trying to jump ahead of all of the 2D virtual tabletops that already exist. I applaud them for their effort. I think the idea of like, why, why would we just recreate things that already exist? We already have Foundry and Fantasy Grounds and Roll20. Why are we going to make another thing that's just another one of those? And then instead, we're going to make something that's going to leapfrog, a, 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 you know, leapfrog ahead of all of that. But boy, it's not like people haven't been trying this for a long time. People have been trying to create 3D virtual tabletops using game engines. Many, many video games, many computer games include an engine where you can build your own sort of worlds in it. It's never been easy. It's never been easy to get people to play in it. It's never been easy to be able to design in it. You have all kinds of client considerations. Can you do it on a tablet? Can you do it on a phone? Can you do it in these other places? It's really hard to do. So good news we don't have to pay for it until it comes out. So it's not like we lose anything if, for them to try. But man, I, would, I wouldn't bet. I'd bet against it. I think it's going to be really hard. And we'll see. And I could be wrong. And they could put a lot of energy and they could break it. But no one has so far. This is one where you, like, you look back at the past and there definitely are 2D virtual tabletops that work. There's no 3D virtual tabletop I have seen that works well. And, and I've seen many, many people try. So... We'll find out, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be betting a lot of money. That feels like hubris to me. That feels like we are so successful. We're going to make this work too. I could be wrong. And boy, I hope I am. I hope it's like, wow, this is awesome. And look, all of Castle Ravenloft in 3D. Wouldn't that be awesome to see the entire Castle Ravenloft in 3D? Because it's the first time you can really experience it in 3D. I actually got to see Castle Ravenloft in Minecraft and it was really cool. That ability of exploring it in 3D. Awesome. And I hope it works. I just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on it. So then the question is, well, are they going to do a 2D VTT? And I can't imagine why they would. If they're going to put a lot of their investment in going towards a 3D virtual tabletop, why would they also do a 2D virtual tabletop? So I think they're going to let that ecosystem work on its own. I think Albert Rodeo will still be around, Fantasy Grounds, Foundry, Roll20, they're all still going to be around. And I would expect those are going to be the predominant, dominant ways to play D&D online probably for the foreseeable future. I think it'll be a long time before you're going to be able to drag people away from those platforms to play in something else. The funny thing is, I think that D&D Beyond could buy uh, above VTT and integrate that kind of thing relatively easily, the same way that they bought Avre and integrated Avre. I bet you they could get a 2D VTT into D&D Beyond in a lot less work than it's going to take to get this 3D one up and running. But I don't think they're going to. I think that they're going to focus their energy on one and they're going to focus on one. So that that's good for you know everybody that was worried about what's going to happen with Roll20. I think Roll20 is going to continue to be supported probably for the foreseeable future. So we'll see. They announced Dragonlance. Here, you're going to have a bit of a rant. Prepare yourself. Prepare yourself for a rant. Dragonlance is getting released in December and it's kind of two different products. It is a hardback book, hardback campaign book. That's an adventure book. And it is a board game that does a war. And in the book, there is going to be a, a, a big war apparently. And during this war, you can use the board game to fight the war. And that looked really cool. And so th remember, they were like ripping through stuff in these announcements over and over and over again, just tearing through stuff, Magic the Gathering and D&D. And I'm at work and I'm like, I'm trying to watch on my lunch break at work and I'm like, wow, this is really cool. What's going on? I'm all jittery. And I saw it and they showed the Lord Soth cover 
And I'm like, oh, look at that cover. Look at it. And here is the Lord Soth cover, right? And I'm like, oh, that looks so cool. I love, I've loved Lord Soth since I was like 13. And I would love to have a cover of this book that has Lord Soth on the cover. That looks so great. And then the question is, okay, so which book do I have to buy to get that? What I had heard, when I heard was that the bundle got a special edition cover of that that had a foil-based cover. If you go to the bundle link, it says the what you get down here, Thunder Master Screen found only in this edition. Shadow Demon Queen printed deluxe edition containing the following Shadow Demon Lord Adventure Book with an exclusive foil cover. I'm like, oh, there it is. That's the Lord Soth cover. Cool. I'll order it. Right. And I'm at work and I'm I'm worried that they're going to sell out. And I order. I hit pre-order and I and I and I drop my money. 155 bucks, 163 dollars with tax. But I'm like, well, it's the board game and it's the Lord Soth cover and it includes a D and D Beyond version. So that's cool. And it's first time that they're doing this. First time that they are selling directly from Wizards of the Coast to customers and that you can buy it and get it. I'm like, oh, that's great. And then I find out the next day, no. That Lord Soth cover, I found out from comicsComicBook.com. That Lord Soth cover, that's the in-store exclusive cover, and there is, and instead, there's this cover, which is the foil cover that is going to be included in that set. But I don't want this cover. I want the one with Lord Soth. I've loved Lord Soth since I was 13. I haven't loved this dragon since I'm 13. I want the Lord Soth cover. Oh, that's cool. I'll just cancel my pre-order. So I go to Wizards of the Coast. There doesn't seem to be any link to contact them to cancel the pre-order. So I like digging around and I'm asking people and they're like, well, there's this customer service thing that you can fill out. And I said, okay, I'll go to the customer service thing and fill out. And I felt the customer service thing. I said, hey, I just realized that this version that is there doesn't have the Lord Soth cover. I really want the Lord Soth cover. So I'd like to cancel my pre-order because I'm going to go order it instead from my local game shop and get the Lord Soth cover. And what I got back was we don't do refunds. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't do refunds? Like, sorry, we don't do refunds. All orders are final. Here is this link to this giant license agreement that you apparently agreed to when you signed up. You don't get a refund. And I'm like, what? It's coming out four months from now. It's not like they sent me a product. It's not like I got the D&D Beyond link already. I could understand it if like product had come to me and now I'm trying to return it. I would get that. It's not coming out for four months. So I wrote back and said, I'm sorry, this is totally unacceptable. Please, please send it, you know, please escalate my request. I just want my money back. And I got another letter later. We said from the manager of the customer service team saying, we really appreciate your feedback. Your feedback is really important to us. We'll be sure to pass this feedback along. We can't answer every individual request, but we definitely hear you and we definitely want to, you know, we definitely appreciate you giving the feedback you give. I'm like, and I wrote back, do you really appreciate it? If you appreciate it, you'll give me my money back. $167. I would like my money back. That's appreciation. Sending me a note saying you appreciate it is an appreciation. Fulfilling my request is appreciation. And then yesterday morning, I got a, how did we do? Can you send out this survey about how our customer service has gone? Did we answer your question appropriately? Were we friendly? You know what? That's not the time to ask me for a survey. I want my money back. I want my $167. In fairness, if you go all the way down, there's a return policy link down here. Look, it's got a fancy, look at the, look at the scroll over. I don't care about my cookies. Look at that scroll over. Really cool. You click on it. All orders are considered final and we do not accept refunds or requests for returns. I'm pretty sure in other countries in the world, countries that they're selling, they have to refund your money. I don't think in the United States they do. I'm not sure. I, I did some Googling wasting my time, right? And I'm a busy dude and I'm wasting my time trying to find out how to get a refund. I did a little bit of Googling 
And I don't know that there's a law that says you have to. I know I'm going to call my credit card company if they don't give me money back and I'm going to contest it. And that if the contest goes through, A, it's going to waste my time because I have to do that. I'm going to have to work with my bank on it. And if they contest it, it's going to be bad news for Wizards of the Coast because they're going to have to pay a fee. They could just refund the money, but now they're going to have to pay a fee. And I think it hurts their credit rating too. Now it's not their credit rating because of course they're working with scale fast, you know, bottom dollar, right? Hey, how do we save a little bit of money on the story work? Let's work with scale fast. And I'm sure it's not Wizards of the Coast who's doing this. I'm sure it's scale fast who's doing it. But it's Wizards of the Coast representation. It's their website, D&D Store. And it's the first time they're doing this. You want to sell product that includes a bundle of D&D Beyond and a physical product? Don't screw your first customers who are on board. I love D&D, man. I'm on doing my show. I buy everything. I've got piles of books. And I'm not calling for a boycott or anything like that. I'm going to buy all your crap anyway. In fact, I'm going to buy this book regardless. I'm still going to go get that Lord Soth cover because I've loved Lord Soth since I was 13. Do right by your customers. Give a refund, particularly for a pre-order. Do right. Be better. Come on. Oh, and here's what, here's what really kills me. Later, this post, tweet from Wizards of the Coast. Get access to digital content two weeks in advance when you pre-order the dungeon, bu- the dungeon book bundle. Hey, look what cover they're using. The Lord Soth cover. I've, Lord, I've loved Lord Soth since I was 14. Look at that. There it is. Oh, I should go click that and buy that. Yeah, pre-order. Can't return it. Wrong cover. So good news is, worst case, I'm giving it away to you guys. Worst case, I will get this bundle and we'll do some kind of giveaway and one of you will get my bundle. Better would be Wizards of the Coast doing the right thing and letting people cancel their pre-order. Come on. So there's my Dragonlance rant. In short, I would be very careful ordering from their store because if there's any reason why it turns out that you really wish you hadn't pre-ordered a purchase, right now, they have your money. They did announce five other products. And they announced them in like 10 seconds. And these are big deals. I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more. This is their entire lineup of books for 2023. And that's pretty interesting. Keys from the Golden Vault is basically, it looks like it's an apology for Dragon Heist not being about a heist. That's my little snarky remark. But it looks like it is a book of different adventures that are all heist-based adventures and independent adventures. I really like these, I really like these books. I think, I think, I really like the books that have a lot of small adventures with a good, diverse set of a number of different writers that are able to write for them. I think that works really well. Glory of the Giants looks to be like a Fizzbands Treasury of Dragons kind of book for giants. We've already seen playtests for that. That looks cool. I'm not totally like into giants, but I mean, I'll buy it. Of course, I buy everything. Oh boy, I have another rant for the Fandelver campaign. So they are doing a Fandelver campaign. We don't know what this is. There's lots of speculation about what it is. But here's my weird issue. For eight years, people have asked me, hey, I just finished Lost Mine of Fandelver. What should I run next? And I've had no good answer for them. There's no good path in Wizards product lineup. There's no good path that takes you from Lost Mine of Fandelver to anything else. You, you could kind of take Storm King's Thunder and expand from there. But Storm King's Thunder also starts at first level. And it's kind of weird. But you could, you could go into Storm King's Thunder. You could go into... Uh, Princes of the Apocalypse, but again, you're skipping the whole intro to Princes of the Apocalypse. You can kind of shoehorn it into a lot of the other hardcover adventures, but almost all of those adventures start at low level. They start at first level, not at fifth level. And a lot of players, and I've gotten this request many times, a lot of players have gone through Fendover, love their characters, and want to continue. So, of course, you can do a homebrew campaign, but there's never anything good. So now it's like, hey, guess what? We're going to do a campaign that's built on Lost, on, on Lost Mine of Fendover. And you can go from Lost Mine of Fendover directly into this. They did that the same time that they have canceled Lost Mine of Fandelver. 
It's out of print. They just created a new starter set that isn't Lost Mine of Fandelver. Granted, there will be lots of copies of Lost Mine of Fandelver around for a long time, but it's now out of print. So you just made a follow-on campaign adventure for this other product that you just put out of print nine months before you brought out the other one. Are you kidding me? Why would you bring out the thing that I've needed for eight years after you've said we're not going to print that one anymore? Right now, I guess it's going to be available for free on D&D Beyond. But how about making a campaign adventure built on Stormwreck Isle? You just put out a new starter set. Why not put out a product that expands that starter set into a big, long campaign? Why would you pick your old starter set from eight years ago and do it for that one? It's a great one. I love it. But why do that one? Why not do one that, that is Stormwreck and Beyond? And it's the huge campaign adventure that goes on after Stormwreck. So that you have a new starter set, very popular, connected to your new campaign. This, there's something about Wizards of the Coast trying to coordinate two products that they just can't seem to get together. And instead, they... So some people say, oh, well, it will have Lost Mine of Fandelver in it. So that way, if you buy the Fandelver campaign, you'll actually... It starts at level one and it has the Fandelver campaign in it. I already bought the Fandelver campaign. I've bought it like 50 times. I've been throwing them all over my neighborhood every time it's $7. So I don't want to buy a book that also recreates the thing I already bought. Just do a new one, right? It doesn't make any sense to me. So that's my big rant there. I applaud the idea. You know when the time to do a Fandelver campaign is? 2015, not 2023. Do, do a Stormwreck one. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. And I don't really know anything about the product. And maybe it's great. And of course, I'll buy it because I buy everything. But I don't know why they would do that. It doesn't make any sense. Book of Many Things looks like a Xanathar's and Tasha's style book of new character options. I don't know what it's going to be like. It'll be very interesting. Is it going to have, how is that going to play, given the fact that that is going to be basically a year into a playtest of the next core books? I don't know what that's going to be like. That's going to be very interesting. Is it going to have rule supplements that they expect you could put on top of what comes out in the core books in a year? But the core books are still a year out, so I don't know that they'll know what's going to make it and what's not. I don't know what that book is going to be like and what's going to be interesting. And then they announced Planescape. And we're all very, those of us who love Planescape are very excited for Planescape. The interesting thing is they said that Planescape is going to be a box set like Spelljammer is going to be a box set. Now, next week, I'm going to do a deep spotlight on Spelljammer. I, I picked up my copy. I've given it a good look. I've got thoughts. And we're going to look at that. But I can tell you, in my opinion, and I think the opinion of a of, of few others that I've heard from, I, I don't know if it's the majority. I don't know. It could be a silent or it could be a loud minority. There are a lot of people who aren't happy with the box set for Planescape because it is so thin. It's so few pages and it covers so little ground that it didn't really offer. I mean, my, my short on, on Spelljammer is that it really isn't offering me a whole lot considering it's $20 more than a book. And if you compare it to Eberron, if you take Eberron Rising from the Last War and you put it next to the Spelljammer one and ask how much am I getting out of these, I get tr almost twice as much useful material, maybe way more than twice as much useful material out of Eberron. Because there's like a critical mass of the information in Eberron that would let me play Eberron forever using just that book. That critical mass does not exist in the Planescape book or in the Spelljammer book. So my, my big hope is they change their mind and they don't do another box set for Planescape and instead make a Eberron rising from the last war, great big 320 page book packed to the gills with material that I can use to run Planescape for the rest of my life. There's not nearly enough material in Spelljammer for me to play that for the rest of my life. I'm going to burn through that stuff so fast. It's, it's basically the equivalent of getting the D&D Essentials kit only for Spelljammer. It is so thin and it's so thin on its, the material that it's got. And Eberron is so thick and it costs $20 less. 
I, I really hope they reconsider doing Planescape as a box set and instead make it a nice big thick book that lets me play Planescape forever just like i can do it with eberron rising from the last war just like i can do with van richten's guide to ravenloft which is also a really thick book i don't think the move to box sets is some kind of commercial advantage for wizards of the coast i would bet the reason why it's 20 dollars more for spelljammer is because it actually costs that much to make the spelljammer box set is beautiful the construction of it is beautiful the feeling of it the art the paper quality is amazing the paper quality is above any other book they've ever put out the art the, the way the art sits on the page, the color depth is gorgeous. It is by far the most well put together set. It just doesn't contain enough information. A lot of people will kind of say like, oh, this is just a money grab for them. That the Spelljammer box set, the fact that it was so thin was a money grab. I'm almost sure that isn't the case. I am almost sure that they are legitimately trying new formats for things. I think they were eager and excited to try a new format. For, for something. I just don't think that format works because it, it doesn't give them enough freedom to really fill it out and still charge a rate that people are willing to pay for. So I think go back to books, go back to the $50, $60 books and pack them full of material like you did with Eberron. Eberron is also a beautiful book. I love it. And I would just want more books like Eberron. So I don't think it's a money grab. I'm bringing up Spelljammer only to compare it to the Planescape box set that they might do later this year. But next week, I'm going to do a pretty good in-depth look at the Spelljammer box set and what it brings to the table and what it doesn't and why. So I am really excited for what's coming up with D&D. I am a neophile. I like new things. I like to watch things evolve. I get excited about new systems. I have followed every version of D&D since second edition. I have played every version of D&D since second edition all the way through and enjoyed it and then been happy to see the new editions coming around. I was very happy when 3.5 moved to 4. I was very happy when 4 moved to 5. I just like new things. So I'm very excited to see what's happening. I'm very optimistic about what I've seen from the playtest. I'm excited to hear about it. I heard like Chris Perkins is saying that he's re-looking at writing the Dungeon Master's Guide and writing it for new DMs. I think that will be outstanding. I'm very excited to see how that how that comes about. I think it's going to be a really exciting year ahead, right? I think we've got 18 months of playtesting, which is a good amount of playtesting. And we're going to see in a couple of years a, some new revised core books that I think are going to be pretty useful when looking at past material. I'm, I'm very excited for it. I love 5th edition. I think it's the best version of d and I've ever seen. I'm happy to see some refinements. So I'm very excited for it. And I, I think we have really exciting times ahead. Look at the play test. Try it out. Try it in your games. Send feedback. And I think together we can all really help steer this game that we love so much. If you enjoyed this show, you can help me out in four ways. You can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter where you get weekly D&D articles sent right to your inbox and a free adventure generator PDF for nothing at all. All you have to do is subscribe. You can support me directly on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material, exclusive products, things that I'm working on for the future, video previews, a monthly Q&A that I normally do on the show. I didn't have time today. Sorry, patrons, but we'll, do, we'll definitely do it next week and access to a dedicated Discord channel. You can pick up any of my books in the Sly Flourish bookstore. They're all in the show notes below. I believe all of them will be fully compatible with the next iteration of D&D. And you can help share this video with your friends, pass it to your friends, subscribe to it on YouTube, tell other people about it and help me out by getting the word out. So thank you all so much for, for hanging out with me today. Get out there and play some D&D.